Our opening words this morning come from Stride Toward Freedom, the Montgomery story by Martin Luther King, Jr. Another group with a vital role to play in the present crisis is the white northern liberals. The racial issue that we confront in America is not a sectional but a national problem. The citizenship rights of Negroes cannot be flouted anywhere without impairing the rights of every other American. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. A breakdown of law in Alabama weakens the very foundations of lawful government in the other 47 states. The mere fact that we live in the United States means that we are caught in a network of inescapable mutuality. Therefore, no American can afford to be apathetic about the problem of racial justice. It is a problem that meets every man at his front door. The racial problem will be solved in America to the degree that every American considers himself personally confronted with it. Whether one lives in the heart of the Deep South or on the periphery of the North, the problem of injustice is his problem. It is his problem because it is America's problem. I invite you now to join in singing our opening song as Bailey calls out our verses. Gonna keep on moving forward. Keep on moving forward. Keep on moving forward. Never turning back. Never turning back. Gonna keep on loving boldly. Gonna keep on loving boldly. Keep on loving boldly. Keep on loving boldly. Never turning back. Never turning back. Gonna reach across our borders. Gonna reach across our borders. Reach across our borders. Reach across our borders, never turning back, never turning back. Gonna end the occupations, gonna end the occupations, end the occupations, end the occupations. Never turning back, never turning back. Gonna keep on moving forward, gonna keep on moving forward. Keep on moving forward, keep on moving forward. Never turning back. Never turning back. Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I'm Zeb Green, the clergy intern here, and my pronouns are he and him. And I'm so glad that you're joining us today, whether you're in the room or on Facebook. Visitors and guests, we hope that you have a blue name tag on so that we can know who you are and welcome you. We'd love to answer any questions you might have. We all love to talk about this community and why it's so important to us. We'd like to hear from you about what you brought you here and what you're looking for. 
We hope you'll join us afterwards for coffee and lobby in the social hall. And please consider sharing your email with us on the gold sheet in your program so that we can add you to our mailing list. You can drop it in the collection basket as it passes later in the platform service. I want to remind everyone to please silence your electronic devices so you can be more fully present today. And while you have them out, feel free to check in on social media. I'd now like to invite Christine to read our statement of purpose so that we can hear our shared values and each other's words. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and for the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults where we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. As we light our candle, our community candle, I invite you all to join me in the candle lighting words projected behind me. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. We ring this bell each week in solidarity with the people around the world, especially we hold in our hearts those in California struggling with the mudslide, those with temporary protected status, and all immigrants who feel marginalized, belittled, and denigrated, and the people of Hawaii living in fear of false missile claims. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. I invite you now into a time of meditation. Let your eyes gently close. Plant yourself firmly in your seats and in the floor. And today we will be sharing words from Martin Luther King Jr. Agape is disinterested love. It is a love in which the individual seeks not his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Agape does not begin by discriminating between worthy and unworthy people or any qualities that people possess. It begins by loving others for their own sakes. It is entirely neighbor regarding concern for others, which discovers the neighbor in every man it meets. Therefore, agape makes no distinction between friend and enemy. It is directed towards both. Agape is not a weak, passive love. It is love in action. Agape is love seeking to preserve and create community. It is insistence on community even when one seeks to break it. Agape is a willingness to sacrifice in the interest of mutuality. Agape is a willingness to go any length to restore community. It doesn't stop at the first mile, but goes the second mile for community. It is a willingness to forgive, not seven times, but 70 times seven to restore community. Agape means a recognition of the fact that all life is interrelated. All humanity is involved in a single process, and all men are brothers. 
love, agape, is the only cement that can hold a broken community together. When I am commanded to love, I am commanded to restore community, to resist injustice, to meet the needs of my brothers. I invite you to meditate on Dr. King's words. And as we focus on our breath, looking inwards, I also invite you to bring your attention to the rhythm and beating of your own heart. What does agape mean to you? How do you connect to others? What barriers do you have in forming that connection? And how can you expand that love to encompass all, even those you like the least? Thank you so much to Zeb for finding and sharing those beautiful words on agape from Dr. King and to the chorus for that music that will stay with me. I met a um, pastor who's new to town uh, the other day who serves just up the road from here. We decided to get together on Friday to have coffee. We had sent a couple of emails. I knew she had recently moved to town and, and joined that congregation to lead it. And um, so we thought we would just meet each other 
And of course, I showed up there on Friday morning, and she'd gotten to the coffee shop a little before me and had her big book that was open and highlighting and post-it noting, and, you know, one preacher recognizes another's sermon prep, right? And I said, oh, of course, I imagine you're preaching on Martin Luther King this weekend. We all are this Sunday, right? And she said, yes, of course she was. She had some uh, significant tome. But she pointed out to me that, no, actually, we're not all uh, preaching about Martin Luther King this weekend. In fact, she said, our country is not at all sure this weekend that Martin Luther King's dream is something worth celebrating, worth marking. There's been a lot of conversation over the years about the kind of dumbing down of Martin Luther King's uh, legacy, taking away his really quite radical edges of his work and ministry and making them palpable to moderate white America. And that has happened for sure. You have probably seen it. MLK's quotes have been used in all kinds of contexts, sometimes to suggest that loving people means not fighting, which I find particularly extraordinary. (laughs) When I think about how hard King fought, the incredible risks that he took and that those in the movement he was part of took with him, how unpalatable, in fact, his work was at the time of his life. But that kind of softening of King's message isn't even what this other pastor was talking about when she said to me, no, actually, I think we're not all preaching about King this weekend. She was pointing out that our country has folks who have been emboldened in the last year to actually outright reject King's message, not even to say it in kind of a soft-pedaled way, but to use language and create policies that make clear a rejection of what King called the beloved community, the basic dream of equality. This is a hard weekend for me to celebrate King, this particular one. This past week has not been a great one in my book, on a national scale. The president of this country has shown his racism. Again, you know what they say, if someone tells you who they are, believe them. <laughs> he has shown it again through deeply hurtful words. And, and somehow this was even harder for me, not just the words that he used, which I expected or am inured to at this point, but the doubling down from his staff members. His staff members who didn't, as I might guess, you know, try to deny his words, but instead responded in more socially appropriate language that, yes, yes, what what he said is the position of the administration, confirming the racism that underlies our immigration policies, the idea that certain countries produce, yes, more desirable immigrants, as though, number one, that were true, which we all know it's not, and number two, that a person's desirability, the economic value they might contribute, has anything to do with their worth as a person and their right to safety and dignity. Dr. King's words on agape spoke so beautifully to that distinction. And we saw this week exactly what it looks like when racist policies are invoked in our immigration rules as yet more holders of temporary protected status, folks who have been here legally in this country for 20 years or more, who were welcomed in because of natural disasters or war or other untenable circumstances in their home countries, suddenly find their legal status here revoked. A change, I'm sure I don't need to tell you, that will have dramatic effect here in the D.C. area where so many of our neighbors, coworkers, and friends, ourselves, are TPS holders, in particular from El Salvador and from other countries as well. It is a hard weekend to stand here and celebrate King and his legacy in this country. 
And listen, I know I am preaching to the choir here, or rather speaking to the chorus, as we like to say. I know whatever it is that even when we in this community sometimes disagree on language or on tactics, that we share so many of the same basic values, right? That those values include the worth of every person, the need to be in solidarity with those who have been and are marginalized, the continuation of the dream articulated by King and many others of a world where every person's dignity is upheld and our collective liberation is assured. I know I am speaking to the chorus and all of you. And... Here is the indictment I put on myself. I am sorry to say that progressives and especially white progressives are kind of famous for thinking all of these things, holding them deeply and passionately in our hearts, and then not always doing that much about them. So now wait, before you get all hashtag not all white progressives on me, of course, not all white progressives, right? Of course, there are amazing white progressive activists in our own congregation, in our own city, across the country. There are now, there have always been white progressive activists, white radical activists who have taken the lead, who have followed the lead of people of color to move forward more deeply with important work. So you are right. Not all white progressives. But here's the thing. I've been trained in community organizing principles, and one of the takeaways from that work is the idea of self-interest. I kind of struggled with that in the beginning, self-interest. It sounds like being selfish, and in some ways it is. It's thinking about what is your own internal interest, your self-interest, and finding the motivation to act out of that. And the idea in community organizing is to really look for the self-interest of the people you are trying to organize. What's going to get them out of bed because it matters to them, to their own lives, to their own safety, their own comfort in the world, their ability to move freely or to raise their children safely or to receive a quality education. And the truth is, that if I, myself, look solely at my self-interest, here I am, a white woman married to a man in uh, essentially upper-middle-class family with lots of formal education, in a safe neighborhood with multi-generational financial support, with citizenship and English as our first language, well, we are doing pretty well. With the major aside that as a woman in leadership and a woman in general, of course, I experience sexism, misogyny, sexual harassment, and fear of sexual assault on a regular basis. But even there, the privilege that I carry insulates me to a large extent from the worst of those experiences on a daily basis. And so, in fact, one might see that my self-interest is to maintain the status quo, which is working out pretty okay for my family. And there, I think, is the crux of the challenge. I am not vaulted out of bed necessarily by fear for my own family's life, my own safety, my own ability to move in the world. Now, I know that many of you in this room cannot say the same, and I want to note I speak only from my own perspective. There are many in our community who carry identities that are significantly marginalized and who have clear self-interest immediately in changing our society. But for those of us like me who do not, who cannot identify it quite as quickly at 6 in the morning when it's cold and we don't really want get out of bed to make it to that meeting, right? To get to that march or that action. How do we move from our affirmation of the dream of king, the dream of beloved community, the dream of building a brighter future for all, as we say on Sunday mornings while we light our candle? How do we take those affirmations, those intentions, and bring them into action? Because while King is sometimes celebrated for his dreams, for his vision, for his unbelievably eloquent 
voice, and words, he was really a man of action, of deliberate and planful and sometimes boring action and organization. I have been reading again the letter from a Birmingham jail. I commend it to you if you have not read it. It's easily digestible in one sitting, unlike some of those tomes by and about Martin Luther King. King wrote this as an open letter, although it was directed to eight white ministers who had written an op-ed in Birmingham, just as King and others were arrested for civil disobedience. They wrote this op-ed to the paper called A Call for Unity, which sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, who's not for unity? The letter from a Birmingham jail carries in it a number of famous phrases, which you will recognize, some of which showed up in others of King's works later. You know, if you find a great turn of phrase, you might as well use it several times. One of those is, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. In this letter, this response to those eight white ministers who were asking Dr. King and his compatriots to stop all of their rabble-rousing, to stop the uncomfortable, uncivil act of being arrested, the direct action that they had been undergoing and continue to plan in Birmingham. He wrote this letter in response to them and defends in the letter the need for direct action, even when it is uncomfortable or inconvenient or uncivil. He wrote, you deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham. But your statement, I'm sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. I'm sure that none of you would want to rest content with the superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. It is unfortunate that demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham, but it is even more unfortunate that the city's white power structure left the Negro community with no alternative. King outlines in this letter his essential organizing strategy, the strategy of nonviolent organization. And he talks about the four basic steps of a nonviolent campaign. In any nonviolent campaign, he writes, there are four basic steps. Okay, I guess I didn't need to say that because King just said that. Probably better. <clears throat> Collection of the facts to determine whether injustices exist, negotiation, self purification and direct action. Direct action, you see, isn't ever the first one. It's the one you get to after you've tried the other things and they haven't worked. That's King's point in his letter from the Birmingham jail. We tried those other things, he said. We tried negotiating. We tried coming with reasonable solutions with careful and thoughtful and civil requests. And lo and behold, nothing happened. And so here we are. About a week ago, funny story, I was posting in a colleague's group um, on Facebook. There's like a group of about a thousand Unitarian Universalist ministers. And um, we talk about all kinds of things, but um, often what we talk about is something like what I posted, which was I told everybody I was going to do a platform about Martin Luther King Jr. and his organizing techniques, and I realized I don't actually know that much about it. Could somebody help me? And then people usually recommend... um, approximately 800-page novels um, or nonfiction books that I could read. That's right, right? Yeah, 800-page, you know, and I'm like, that's, oh, okay, thanks. But actually, this time, the very first comment on my thread in this this group of about 1,000 was from our own Zeb Green, who commented, you should ask your intern. (laughs) So... 
As you all know, Zeb, um, Zeb is our clergy intern. He's been with us about five months now, and he'll be with us half time um, over the next year and a half for a total of two years. And it turns out um, that Zeb is actually, I'm going to see if I can get this right, he's actually officially certified, like I saw the certificate, in um, Kingian nonviolence conflict and reconciliation training. And so, um, luckily on Tuesday, he gave me a crash course. And what I want to say is, um, over the course of the week, as he continued to comment on my Facebook post and in person with really helpful pieces of information, it became clear to me that if you at some point want a platform with actual deep information about the history of the civil rights movement and the grounding of nonviolence um, and uh, nonviolent campaigns, you should have Zeb do that platform. So, um, but, but he shared with me something that I thought was helpful, um, and I'm actually going to ask him to come up um, and, and share with you. Remember, I talked about those basic steps of a nonviolent campaign, which um, King wrote about in his letter from the Birmingham jail, and it turns out that actually they've been sort of refined and built upon, and there's hand movements. So I'm going to ask Zeb to take that part of this platform. Okay, so there are now six steps of the nonviolent campaign and hand gestures. And I'm going to say these hand gestures came to me from my friend Sherry Bevel, who is the daughter of civil rights leaders Diane Nash from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the Reverend James Bevel, James Bevel who um, was one of King's lieutenants. And... Sherry is a wonderful person in her own right. In addition to working on her PhD, she teaches nonviolence and black empowerment to inner city youth in Chicago. So the hand gesture, about as legit as you can be. These are <laughs> civil rights, bona fide, fun hand gestures to learn. <laughs> so the first step is to gather information. And once you've gathered your information, it's about education. So educating yourself, educating others. And as you've synthesized this information, you're looking to really commit. So learn how to discipline yourself, how to engage as well and constrained as possible. So it becomes gather information, educate, personal commitment. And once you've had your personal commitment, You've entered all these steps. The next one is negotiation, reaching out to other people. So, and once you've had your negotiation, there's an alternative fifth step, which ideally we would never have to use, but often we do, which is the direct action. Your negotiations have failed, and it's time to really force something. So you go into direct action. And if everything is working out and your direct action has worked and it's brought people to the table and you can really work together, you can have, finally, reconciliation. So it's all together with gather information, education, personal commitment, negotiation, direct action, reconciliation. All right. Thank you. So I love that. I, I enjoy hand gestures. They help me remember things. It would be even better if you could like write a song next time. Um, but, <laughs> but ultimately, actually, this isn't a platform about one particular kind of organizing. Although I find those organizing principles helpful in almost any context. They are helpful to remember when there is something that we want that we need to go through each of those steps. But ultimately, this is about the need to move from dreams and ideas and righteous indignation into any kind of organizing, any kind of action. When I return to that idea of self-interest, what it is that gets us out of bed in the morning, and how to change my own self-interest right? From being just about my family, where perhaps my self-interest is the status quo. For me, the way to shift that, the way to get me out of bed is through relationship. 
It's through being in deep and meaningful relationship with people whose self-interest is different than mine, different enough that mine begins to shift. That my understanding, in fact, of who my family is, who it is that I am called to protect in the way I might protect my children, begins to expand. To remember that single garment of destiny that we are part of. So what, then, will you do? Each one of us, of course, is able to support our dreams and ideas, the ideals of Martin Luther King in different ways. Some of us have money and not time. Some of us have time and not money. Some of us actually have neither of those things. If you have both of them, please see me after. (laughs) But we have perhaps relationships in which we can speak out, relationships that we can build. The importance, I think, of acting is not just for the country, not just for our city, not just for the world we would like to see, but also in so many ways for our own mental health. As we have gone through the last year, I have seen the exhaustion, have felt it myself. We've talked about it here on Sundays that folks are feeling as each week seems as though it brings yet one more upsetting policy, yet one more depressing, infuriating tweet. And so acting, being part of a solution, part of an organized effort moving forward is one of the ways that I have kept myself on even keel. Now, I want to note that organizing with other people doesn't always mean agreeing on tactics. Martin Luther King's tactics shifted over time himself, and he also clashed with and agreed with and clashed with other leaders in the civil rights struggle. Many people famously kind of hold up the different tactics employed by King and Malcolm X, who advocated a different approach, one that held nonviolence was not the only strategy required. Malcolm X was hearkening back there to other justice fighters, such as Nat Turner and John Brown, Unitarian minister Theodore Parker, who preached with a gun in the pulpit because he had runaway slaves in the back of the church. Zeb Green uh, saves us again. He wanted to share with me a quote from Thurgood Marshall, which I add on to you. Marshall said, I used to have a lot of fights with Martin about his theory about disobeying the law. I didn't believe in that. He kept talking about Thoreau, and I, the author of Civil Disobedience, and I told him, I said, if I understand it, Thoreau wrote his book in jail. <laughs> Seb went on to say that he finds it fascinating to point out that their disagreements about strategy and tactics between Marshall and King, not just the King and X dichotomy. But the truth is, we don't have to agree on everything to do something. And I actually believe that the system needs both people inside it, reshaping it and tweaking and changing it, and also people outside the castle walls lobbying things over and trying to burn it down. It needs both of those at the same time. Bayard Rustin, another great civil rights hero, called those outside the angelic troublemakers. Our power, he said, is our ability to make things unworkable. There is a down and dirty aspect to organizing to any movement that isn't about beautiful speeches or visionary leaders, but rather about the people making coffee, the people printing flyers, the people figuring out what order the speakers should go in. There's a great graphic novel series called March, which is written um, as a writing team, but in part by uh, John Lewis, of course, an incredible figure in the civil rights movement then and today. And the book is really about all that went up to the march on Washington, which we imagine, I think, if we were not there ourselves, as this sort of amazing moment in history where everything just came together. Well, the graphic novel shows you the dirty organizing, the down and dirty work, the long and boring committee meetings that led to that. 
And of course, that work, those meetings, that organizing, those sit-ins day after day after day until finally one moved the needle forward, that work wasn't done just by King. It was done by the women of the movement, by Bayard Rustin, whom I mentioned, who did a huge amount of work and was unrecognized because he was gay, which was not acceptable within the structure at the time for a public figure. In fact, Zeb reminded me the Montgomery boycotts were going on before King arrived on the scene. He built on the infrastructure created by so many. I've been fascinated even by the work that King did. It's one reason I like this book, Stride Toward Freedom, which is not that long, see? <clears throat> it's written by King about the Montgomery um, story about the work leading up to it. And the reason I liked it, I read it first in seminary, is that it was just so um, uh, normal. He talks about his, the course of his day, when he woke up in the morning, how he fit his sermon writing in, how he organized the committees. There's a story I heard once, and I haven't found it since, so it may be apocryphal, but I, I love it, so I'm going to tell it anyway, <clears throat> about King arriving at the church and finding that... Um, you know, it was taking a lot of energy to get people to sign up for committees, which is perhaps the one way we are exactly like Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. Um, and uh, it was just taking all this time, getting everybody to sign up. And so he took all of the people and he divided them into alphabetical groups. And he said, if you're A through um, D, you're ushers this month. And if you're E through J, you're welcome team this month. And, and I don't want to hear any more from you. Perhaps why I, I like that story. Anyway, <laughs> but so much of what King did was not the glamorous part, not the eloquent speeches, but rather the meetings in church basements, the asking people to show up and to work perhaps without any expectation that their work would be successful today or next week or the next month or next year but to work as part of a movement moving forward, as we sang this morning. Jen, will you put that slide up here? So this here is a commitment card that Martin Luther King used in 1963. Commitment cards are a common technique in community organizing and in labor, any kind of mass organizing. And... Um, and this one I love in part because it invites people for that personal commitment piece that Zeb talked about, what King in Letter from a Birmingham Jail called self-purification, the idea of committing oneself to the principles, to the ideals of nonviolence. That's one through ten. And he invites people to sign that pledge, having seriously considered what I do and with the determination and will to persevere. This is the beautiful part, right? And then you get to the important part. <laughs> you get to the place where people are asked to help the movement by, circle the proper items, run errands, drive my car, fix food for volunteers, clerical work, make phone calls, answer phones, mimeograph, type, print signs, distribute leaflets. These are the workers of the civil rights movement making coffee and mimeographing flyers, showing up day after day so that the dream could become a reality through the work of organizing. The revolution runs on coffee. It runs on people like this, people like us. So I have something similar to offer you today, and I want to invite our ushers to pass out our commitment cards. And as they do so, I will shout out, um, we don't have mimeographs in our office. I think our technology is only slightly more advanced than that. And so I owe a debt to Robin Kravitz, who put these cards together. Uh, after the many versions I kept sending her late last night. She put them together this morning and even chose on the back of them a great picture of Dr. King with, a, I think, a particularly indicting finger pointing. So 
take a moment to meditate on that. <laughs> we don't usually use sort of, you know, guilt tactics here, but maybe Dr. King can. So on this card, you'll see a list of a whole variety of ways that you can be involved in the work of justice, the work of Dr. King's dream. Some of them are personal reflection. Some of them are contributing money. Some of them are showing up at meetings here or away, things that Wes is already involved in, working in solidarity with immigrants, working for affordable housing and community safety in our city, working with the National Poor People's Campaign, which is brought here by the Reverend Dr. Barber, working with our community, our partner community in El Salvador, with our environmental group, Earth Ethics. And I want to invite you to take that card and to see which box you can check today. It may be simply the box about reflection and learning, and that's okay. And it may be there are other boxes you can check today. When our ushers come by later with their baskets for collection, I'll invite you to put those commitment cards right in the basket and to know that someone will follow up with you based on what you checked so that we can connect you to the work. There's a poem by Marge Piercy I'd like to close with. It's called To Be of Use. The people I love the best jump into work head first without dallying in the shallows and swim off with sure strokes almost out of sight. They seem to become natives of that element, the black sleek heads of seals bouncing like half-submerged balls. I love people who harness themselves, an ox to a heavy cart, who pull like water buffalo with massive patience, who strain in the mud and the muck to move things forward, who do what has to be done again and again. I want to be with people who submerge in the task, who go into the fields to harvest and work in a row and pass the bags along, who are not parlor generals and field deserters, but move in a common rhythm when the food must come in or the fire be put out. The work of the world is common as mud. Botched, it smears the hands, crumbles to dust. But the thing worth doing well done has a shape that satisfies, clean and evident. Greek amphoras for wine or oil, Hopi vases that held corn are put in museums, but you know they were made to be used. The pitcher cries for water to carry and a person for work that is real. Friends, there are things to be angry about. There are things to mourn. There are dreams to dream together. There are long-form articles to read. There is also real work out there crying for us to do it. Let's join together and make that happen.
This is the time on our platform other about what we've heard and how it resonates in our own lives. If you have a thought or a reflection, please raise your hand and I'll bring the microphone to you. Begin by saying your name and being sure to speak closely and clearly into the mic. <laughs> 